the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Wednesday, June the 3rd, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today on June 3, 1965, astronaut Edward White became the first American to walk in space. It was during a flight of the Gemini 4. Today in 1861, Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, that name is familiar because he was an opponent, a political opponent of Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas, Democratic presidential nominee, the 1860 election. He died in Chicago of typhoid fever. He was 48 years old. Today in 1943, Los Angeles saw the beginning of its Zoot Suit Riots. Z-O-O-T, Suit Riots. White servicemen clashed with young Latinos wearing distinctive-looking zoot suits. The violence finally ended when the military officials declared the city off-limits to all of the enlisted military personnel. I kind of remember, no, I don't remember 1943, but, I mean, I was born, but barely. But zoot suits were around in the 50s in Yakima, Washington, because I remember guys wearing those when I was a teenager. But anyway, I didn't know that that's kind of where they came from, I guess, this 1943 problem in Los Angeles. Today, 1948, the 200-inch reflecting telescope at the Palomar Mountain Observatory in California was dedicated. Today, in 1989, Chinese Army troops began their sweep of Beijing to crush student-led pro-democracy demonstrations. And today, in 2008, Barack Obama claimed the Democrat presidential nomination. He was speaking in the same St. Paul, Minnesota arena where Republicans would be holding their national convention in September, just a few months, 2008. Today in 2016, heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali, he died at a hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona. He was 74 years old. And 10 years ago today, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer told President Barack Obama Americans want our borders secured. Obama didn't agree with her. He underscored his objections over the tough immigration law that Brewer had just signed. He said the governor is discriminatory, and so is the law she signed. That was 10 years ago today. Thank you for your notes, comments. Got this letter from Bakersfield. Gary, I hear your voice. It's a tone. That sense of urgency. It's coming across the airwaves. Just pour out the light, brother. <laughs> we try. We do. Thank you for making it possible. Got this note from a, I'm going to read only part of it, a note from a person who contributes regularly, strongly to the ministry here. He says, Gary, um, and tells me where this contribution that he sent came from. Very interesting, and thank you. But he said, the pastors in the late 1700s were firebrands that often preached against the abuses of England. 
King George called them the black-robed regiment, blamed these pastors for starting the war. It was a pastor that took the men from his church to meet the British at Lexington. I do not believe one of these pastors would have closed the doors. Where are they today? God bless you. That's a chilling question, and thank you. I'm going to be talking about that today, and everyone listening to this program is not going to agree with me. I understand that. What I'm going to say is to the point, and it's biblical. So buckle up, and thank you. Our address is Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. I mentioned yesterday on this program that President Trump walked across the street to St. John's Episcopal Church this week, stood in front of it, a church that had been partially set on fire. I'm sure the rioters intended much more. But some are calling out the president, claiming it was just a photo op. I mentioned this yesterday. The governor of New York says it was a photo op. He's disgusted with the president of the United States and so on. But some of the religious communities also calling out the president for walking across the street, holding up a Bible in front of the church. It's just across Lafayette Square from the White House. It's a historic church, as I said, and I don't want to repeat myself. I went through why it's at a historic church. All the presidents from James Madison forward have attended at least a service there over the years. It's meaningful to the country and to people who care about history, and we all should. But Greg Brewer is the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Central Florida. He told the press yesterday, and of course they published it, he said, this is blasphemy in real time. He said, I was shaken watching the protesters in Lafayette Park gassed and cleared so that the President of the United States could do a photo op in front of St. John's Episcopal Church holding a Bible. Well, first of all, he's lying or he's terribly uninformed. By all accounts, and that has been cleared, there was no gas used when the authorities cleared the square, Lafayette Square. Secondly, they cleared the square every night at 7 o'clock. The president knew that, and he chose to wait till a little after 7 to walk across there. They did not clear the square for the president. They always clear the square. But the news media doesn't care about, including the Associated Press, doesn't really care about the truth. They care about getting their message across, in today's world at least, and making a profit. And they're doing both. It's interesting. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, she's a Democrat from Nevada. She said, the Bible can't help you if you don't open it. That, of course, was immediately in the media. She put it on Twitter. The media likes that message. She said he handled the Bible like the ape handled the bone in 2001, a space odyssey. That's the world we live in today. Marco Rubio, to his credit, stepped up and he said the media in the He said many in the media fell for the calculated and deliberate tactics of professional agitators. He said they knew that street needed to be cleared before 7 p.m. curfew, speaking of the president and Bill Barr, our U.S. Attorney General, and others who walked with the president. They made a statement. The president made a statement. He held the Bible up and stood there. It wasn't a photo op. It was an exclamation. It was a, a, a message to the press, to the world that the Bible and the church is important. 
And we live in such a perverse society today that so many people immediately say, well, that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to walk across the street and hold a Bible up in front of a church. It all depends on the motives, and they can't believe that someone would have a clear or pure motive. Franklin Graham, that was not missed by him. Thankfully, there are people today who are speaking out. And I want to talk about, I want to talk about the times in which we live. Franklin Graham, he posted this. He said, after his speech from the Rose Garden Monday afternoon, President Donald Trump made a statement by walking through Lafayette Park to St. John's Episcopal Church that had been vandalized and partially burned Sunday night. Franklin Graham speaking. He surprised those following him by holding up a Bible in front of the church. Thank you, President Trump. God and his word are the only hope for our nation. Franklin posts this scripture verse. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. With the Associated Press mocking President Trump for carrying the Bible publicly, Seattle Council Member Tammy Morales is making national news because she commented she can't understand, I'm quoting her, why looting bothers people so much more than black people dying every day. And Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, she's stirring racism by taking to Twitter. She's blaming white men for the violence and destruction that plagues American cities from Los Angeles to New York. We have to ask ourselves, should the church, should the Christian church be addressing these issues from the pulpit? Let's get to it and see what scripture says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, Paul writes of people having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's verse 5. And from such people turn away, for this sort of for, for of this sort are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. And verse 7 says, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul also writes to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's talking about Christ as the power and the wisdom of God. That's the message of this portion of Scripture. Verses 18 through 25, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those to save those who believe. Verse 22, For Jews request a sign. And, God, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Unlike our America of 2020, in which... The most influential voice in our culture today is the media, so-called news and entertainment. 
Yesterday on Nickelodeon, little kids watching all across America, their parents trusting Nickelodeon. I mean, how could that hurt anybody? They insert sexual messages all the time. Yesterday they had eight minutes and so many seconds, the time that the police officer had his had his knee on the man's neck and killed him tragically. It's horrible. But they set aside that much on Nickelodeon for little kids sitting in front of a television set. And they had breathing with the words, I can't breathe, for eight minutes. And there are parents that are outraged about it. They said, hey, we wanted to tell our kids about this. This is traumatic. And it is. It's horrible. Thankfully, the police officer who did that, obviously, purposefully, is in custody. Justice will be served. The president, the attorney general, and local authorities are telling the public justice will be served. That was wrong. It was sin. It was it was awful. But I want to tell you, when they put that in front of your child, knowing you're distracted doing something else in the home, that's deliberate. And that, too, is tragic. It's awful. But yet today, we have a silent church, and we have a, a, a culture that is roaring and burning out of control. The most powerful voice that we have today is that of entertainment and news that lies. I just read some news to you that was reported by Associated Press of a bishop lying because he hates Trump that much. That's how complicated and complex our culture is today. What fired the contemporary colonial pulpit was the influence of reformers like Luther and Calvin. They're teaching and preaching on the kingdom of Christ and the authority of Scripture. They read verses like I just read to you today and others. That is what fired the preachers to become the leaders of the revolution and the freedom and the liberty and the prosperity that God has given America. Their teaching and preaching on the kingdom of Christ and the authority of Scripture gave rise to the colonial form of self and civil government, which led to the founding of the greatest nation in the history of the world, the most prosperous. There's never been a country like America. Creation of our founding doc- documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, they drew heavily from authority of Scripture. The colonial Christian pulpit included pastors and preachers like Joseph Cotton. He was a Puritan pastor in the 1630s. The preaching of Cotton Mather, the evangelical patriarch, Jonathan Edwards, his most famous sermon, but so many of them were so powerful, people fell to their knees because of the power of God, and they didn't sometimes even understand what was happening? Jonathan Edwards, Sinners, one sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Wow. I'll bet that would really upset some bishops today if they heard that coming over the pulpits. George Whitfield, once because the churches would not allow these people to come in and preach, and they were highly educated, highly prepared, anointed men of God. But they found themselves, George Whitfield more than once found himself in a field preaching. At one time, it's documented that he preached to over 20,000 people in a cow pasture. And of course, without a microphone. They didn't have them. These are the people who inspired the awakening that led to the revolution in America. They inspired, Whitfield was credited with the first great awakening, spiritual awakening. Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. 
became president of what is now Princeton College. Samuel Davies, the pastor of Patrick Henry, inspired Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry famously told his colleagues in government, among many other things, give me liberty or give me death. Unlike the politicians of today, he actually meant that. In conclusion of his Sunday morning sermon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Lutheran pastor Peter Mullenberg, and I mentioned this yesterday on the program, but it fits, I want to repeat it if you missed it. Peter Mullenberg was giving his sermon to his Lutheran church from Ecclesiastes. Verse 8, he read, A time for war and a time for peace. He'd been preaching prior to that about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. He came to this verse, and he read, A time for war and a time for peace. Then he stepped from behind his pulpit. He removed his clerical robe, and it revealed his military uniform. He called on the men of his church to stand up and follow him out the door to join General George Washington in the fight for liberty and freedom. Where would you see that today? I believe you would in some cases. Franklin Graham is certainly a voice with a lot of influence, and there are others. He's not the only one. But too many are silent today. Too many pulpits merely stand as a monument to something of the past. More than 200 men stood and followed their pastor out the door to the battlefield. They believed that God had a plan. They believed that there was a destiny for America. They believed in freedom. They believed in liberty based on Scripture. The critic, the skeptic would say, Gary, that was another time and a place, and they have, believe me. I've, I've been told that often. Things have changed. Besides, no one would follow today. That would be a violation of separation of church and state. It would be a dereliction of duty to family and community and so on. If we continue as we are, we're never going to know. Because the pulpit is mostly silent today on the issues of this culture. Things have changed. There's no question about that. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that have changed. Yale historian Henry Stout wrote a lot about the past in America. He's highly recognized his writings. He's not living now, but he said this in an article some time ago, but and I've sourced that in an article that I wrote today at faithandfreedom.us. He said, I'm quoting him, Over the span of the colonial era, American ministers delivered approximately 8 million sermons, each lasting about one and a half hours. The average 70-year-old church, uh, churchgoer would have listened to some 7,000 sermons in his or her lifetime, total, totally nearly 10,000 hours of concentrated listening. This is the number of classroom hours <clears throat> Excuse me. it would take to receive 10 separate undergraduate degrees in a modern university without ever repeating the same course. The colonists were educated. They were informed. And yes, they were vigilant and discerning. Church was education. Education was Bible-centered. The sermon was one of the chief literary genres in America. Listeners followed sermons closely. They took mental notes. They just discussed the sermon with family members on Sunday afternoon over a meal. I didn't live in the colonial times, thankfully. But even in my lifetime, 
I remember some of that still happening. After church, we generally come home and have dinner and would talk about the sermon. I mean, that isn't so distant future. I know. I'm over 40, but I haven't been around 200 years without even attending a college or seminary, although that was encouraged. A churchgoer in colonial America could gain an intimate knowledge of Bible doctrine, church history, and classical literature. That's why founding father and founder of what we know now as public education, Noah Webster, he said the Bible could actually be the only textbook required for education. He is ridiculed to this day, not only in the classroom, but in politics. As an idiot who didn't even know what he was talking about. You can't use the Bible. That's discriminatory. It's not tolerant. It's not inclusive. Today, those his statement is challenged often. But he said we could use. He didn't say we should. We could use the Bible as the only textbook for education because it speaks to doctrine, to history, and to classical literature. It is classical in that sense. It's much more than that. He was speaking not from an intellectually stunted position like so-called progressives and our enlightened, evolved times, those who criticize his comments today. But he was speaking of a much broader, informed understanding of truth and knowledge, what Paul was addressing in his letters that I read from a few moments ago. Those who criticize his comments today are uninformed. They are what Paul would call those who have a form of godliness, most call themselves some kind of a Christian. That's why the founding father and the founder of public education felt so strongly about the Bible, because they recognized the power of the Bible. Why did they recognize it? Because it was proclaimed over the pulpit. The pulpits did not become a soapbox for politics. The pulpits became a megaphone for the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel. And the power of God's word to transform a life and transform a culture. Today we have come to the point in the church where we think that it's mutually exclusive. We're either going to talk about politics from the pulpit or we're going to preach the gospel. Well, I'm going to choose to preach the gospel. Well, of course you would if you were faced with that decision, but you're not. You can preach the gospel and the gospel is directed at the culture and the individual life. And the culture is going to hell in a handbasket and we're saying, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel. We need to take a step back, those of us who have a voice, a pulpit, and think about that. Why would God give his son to save the world and not care about the culture? And we've been given a great opportunity to speak to the culture, as opposed to many in other countries who do not have a voice. They don't even have a vote. We do, and to to whom much is given, much is required. And we better be speaking to the culture because the culture are the people. And God shapes the future through the people, his people. And our culture is is lost. They're spiritually stunted. They don't even know the truth. And when a, when a guy, whatever his motives were, when a guy walks across, the president of the United States walks across the street carrying a Bible to a historic church where most of our presidents have attended in the history of this nation, and they blow up and burn, and one bishop says he's shaken. Well, he needs to be shaken. He needs to probably find another line of work because he certainly doesn't represent the kingdom of God and the word of God. That I can tell you, and I've never met him. 
He needs to figure out who he is and what he believes. It certainly isn't about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not defending Trump. I'm defending the gospel of Jesus Christ in the culture. And our churches have set back trying to be slick, trying to relate, and the world's going to hell. How's that working out? It isn't. We need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul did it, and yes, he lost his life in the end, but he preached the gospel. So did a lot of others who followed him. And there are those among us today who try to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, that involves speaking to the culture. The pastors were so influential that England's King George III, the king for whom we separated ourselves, he called the Revolutionary War the Parsons Rebellion. The colonial pulpit was so powerful that it influenced generations. Dr. Witherspoon, Dr. Witherspoon was particularly one who was influential. One official of the King's Crown in the colonies wrote back to England that John Witherspoon had so influenced the shape of the conflict that he said it's it's like a religious war. It wasn't a religious war. They weren't fighting over a religion. They were fighting for biblical, eternal principles of freedom. Here's why Reverend Witherspoon had such an influence. He tutored James Madison, architect of the Constitution and U.S. president, Witherspoon was a pastor, and he became president of what we now know as Princeton. He tutored, taught James Madison, architect of the Constitution, U.S. President, Vice President Aaron Burr, nine cabinet members, 21 U.S. senators. This was before they became that. 39 congressmen, three Supreme Court justices, and other political officials. Five of the 55 members of the Constitution Convention were his students. He nurtured a whole a whole generation of statesmen with scripture and biblical worldview. Yes, he spoke to the issues of the day, and he also gave them light and truth, and he gave them, through the Bible, a path that they could walk in and make a difference in their world. J.W. Thornton wrote in the Pulpit and the American Revolution, it's a great book, it's been reprinted, it's been re, um, republished in recent time. In fact, it's available at Amazon, I think. The true alliance between politics and Christianity is the lesson that was deeply implanted in the minds and hearts of early America by the Christian pulpits. He writes, Thornton writes, the pulpit of the revolution is the voice of the founding fathers of the republic, enforced by their example. They invoke God in their civil assemblies, called upon their chosen religious leaders for counsel from the Bible, and recognized its precepts as the law of public conduct. They prepared the new nation for the struggle for liberty with the word of God and a deep trust in him, God, in their hearts. This was the colonist's source of moral energy. What is the source of our moral energy today? As people, millions of people, really, totally, are running the streets of our cities, burning them down. What is their source of energy? It's darkness. It's deception. It's the very thing that Paul is outlining in his letters to the Corinthians and to Timothy. That's the world we live in, but I don't want to preach about politics. Man, we need to get over it. We need to speak to the issues of our culture from a biblical point of view. I think there are other reasons why we're silent sometimes, and it has nothing to do with trying to be trying to be not be not break the separation of church. I hear that so often. That too is a lie. That isn't what Thomas Jefferson said at all. 
Samuel Adams, a patriot and father of the American Revolution, said in this speech that he delivered in Boston on October 4, 1790. He summarized colonial education. He said it's to develop a wise and virtuous man fit to be trusted with the liberty of this country. 